You can go to farmer's market like Donald was talking about. You know, the best thing about farmer's market is you can buy like a turkey leg. Like it's like, it's like this big. You're like Fred Flintstone. It's amazing. And you're like, ooh, it's, and it's so good. And then, yeah, and it's cheap too. It's like nobody wants them. So they're really cheap. They're awesome. It's like, ugh, stringy, but it, it's still great. So if you have no idea what, when he, what he meant when he said bring a baby bottle, I'm like, okay, explain that. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we were doing this uh, fundraiser for CareNet, and we handed out baby bottles. If you happen to take one of those baby bottles, fill with change and bring it back. If you forgot you can bring it next week, it's not like go out and buy a baby bottle and bring it. We're like, what do we do? You know what? We don't know. If you took one, fill with change, bring it back, we'll give it to CareNet. Yay. Okay, so... Um, Today at 12.30, after this service, if you would like to be baptized or want information about baptisms, our next ones are in April, and we're going to do a short little baptism class for you. It'll be right in the back, right afterwards. We'll run everybody out of there so you can actually hear what's going on. Uh, But if you have questions about it, maybe you're not sure about what it is, or if you actually want to do it and stuff, you should. But if you have some questions, go back there. Just attending the class does not obligate you to have to be baptized, although we hope it inspires you to be so. So uh, go back there, 12.30, questions about it, you've been thinking about it, uh, we'd love to talk to you about it. So 12.30 today after the service. So uh, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I like turkey legs, apparently. (laughs) I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you are new and you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. You can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room, and inside those sermon notes, you will have some notes. That's why we call them sermon notes. Uh, and those notes go along with what we talk about, but they don't actually, they aren't exactly what I have in my message. These are extra extraneous things that aren't in there that I couldn't really fit into work, but they all go into what we're talking about. On the back, there's questions. You can ask friends, or if you're in a GC, you can ask, would you see these questions? You can get together and, you know, maybe go through and, and talk about some of this stuff, and it helps flush it out a little bit better. If you have a smartphone, you can even download an app. This app is called Uversion. And you click on live and you version will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and verses and all that goes along with today's message. All those notes. And when I say a verse, you can be like, boom, and you're already there. It's amazing. I know, it's a mouthful. Why don't you stand there reading the God's word? We'll get started. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Thought of this morning, I ask that we would be a people who understand what meekness and humbleness truly means and what inheriting the earth also means that we wouldn't be a people that are all about winning and trying to get ahead but a people who understand the grace and the goodness of you and live your gospel out in every bit of our daily lives amen have a seat Right, so we are doing a series through Jesus' longest and most condensed teaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is week four. If you missed any, you can go back and listen to them. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Have you ever seen any old Jesus movie? What you will typically do is you'll see him standing up on top of a mountain speaking to a crowd. The Sermon on the Mount is where that idea comes from. It's that picture. Uh, if you've ever seen Monty Python's The Life of Brian, they actually emulate this. Oh, okay, for the... am I supposed to laugh at that in church? Okay, so... If you've ever seen this movie, there's a scene that emulates the Sermon on the Mount. And I was going to try and show you a clip of that, but I couldn't find one that was long enough that made sense and short enough that it wasn't vulgar. (laughs) So I'm just telling you about it. Don't watch it. Horrible movie. Anyway, so (laughs) if 
And if you watch it, you're going to be thinking, why in the world are Middle Eastern people speaking with a British accent? That's just crazy. But, but here, here's the idea. At the Sermon on the Mount, there really was a whole hodgepodge of people. There weren't British people there, but a whole hodgepodge of people. You had people who were like Greeks, and they were very sophisticated with their art and their athletics and their intelligence. Today it would be like you'd have your Yale professors and your Berkeley art majors and Team USA. You know, they, they were all there. You would also have the very orthodox Jews. They would have their robes and their sideburns and their kosher and their Sabbath and the Torah and their mitzvot would be there. You would also have the very poor. You would have the peasants and beggars. You would have prostitutes and probably a few thieves who were listening and maybe even going through the crowd trying to get a little bit extra money. Uh, You also had some tax collectors who were considered to be betrayers to their very own country. Essentially, if we looked at this, we would say, well, there's the sinners and the righteous. You have those who have done all the right things and those who wouldn't know what the right thing was if it bit them on the butt. And so really what you see in this is you see the winners and the losers. That's really what Matthew 5, 5 is about and how Jesus turns that on its head. To this very eclectic mix of people, Jesus' words would resound in completely different ways. Today I want to show you the Jewish way that it would resound with the hearers of Matthew 5, 5. And next week we'll recap verses 3 through 5 and then walk through how they all fit together. How they heard it, how we hear it, and how it all works together. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 1, just to have this in context. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, because that's how Middle Eastern teachers would teach, they would sit down. So when you see the Sermon on the Mount pictures and Jesus is standing there, wrong. Okay, sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them, then being this crowd, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed has this idea of fortunate. So fortunate are the meek, for they are the ones who inherit the earth. Now, I know you probably have this discussion all the time with your friends. You go out to lunch, and you're like, man, who do you think gets the earth? And you just, no? Yeah, okay. Yeah, most of us don't. And so, you know, I'm trying to figure out in our culture, you know, we say, who inherits the earth? Who gets it? What does that mean? And I didn't really have this conversation with anybody, so I asked Google. Oh, mighty Google. I said, Google, who inherits the earth? These are the first seven pictures that came up when I said, it's to Google, who inherits the earth? Okay, number one, these guys. (laughs) Number one. I'm thinking they need to get on the stick because they ain't got much time left to inherit here. Here's the next one. Are you experienced? How is he going to do that? He's in the ground. All right, here's the next one. (laughs) Maybe America. Okay, Okay, anyway. Uh, Number three, seriously. Number four, Doctor Who. The TARDIS has arrived. Number five. Someone in first service says, any search you do on Google, he comes up. And I'm like, I'm like, really? So uh, I want a new pair of socks. Boom. I'll get the beavers. Next one. Yes. Spider-Man. And I have no idea why. This was number seven. Google thinks girl in mud, earth. I don't know why, but, 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 that's, but that's what Google thinks. The question is, really, who gets to rule and reign? Who gets what they want? The, the question really is, who gets control? Like, if you call up to your cable provider and you're really mad at them, do you get farther being mean or being nice? Exactly. Nice. You never called your cable company. Yeah. Mean. It's like you call up and you're a jerk, and they're like, oh, let me get you the manager right away. And boom, you're off and going. It seems like the nicer you are, the, the, 
farther you don't actually get. And that, that's kind of the thing. Who gets what they want? Who gets control? Is it the loud people? Is it the smart people? People who can accumulate stuff. You know, those who can throw uh, elbows, who can leverage their assets. You know, those who can make their mark. Who gets the earth? Is it the first stringers? Is it the Barsi or the JV, the thin, those who win American Idol? Is it the entrepreneurs? Is it the ones who can step on others? Who gets the earth? See, this actually really is a question we ask today. We just don't even know that we actually ask it. It's who gets ahead? Who gets what they want? Who does God give the things that they think they want to? Who does God give me that? And God gives it. Who are those people? Who gets the earth? See, we, we think we have an idea of how it's supposed to get carved up, and it never gets carved up how we want it to be carved up. Now, there is this Jewish hermeneutic. Now, hermeneutic is your $2 word for the day. You're welcome. Uh, hermeneutic is essentially the art of text interpretation. And there's this Jewish hermeneutic, and it's called a remez. A remez. And what Jesus is doing here is he's remezzing. It goes to the heart of what God is doing in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Some people, when they read the Sermon on the Mount, will count 26 remezes in it. And what a remez is, it's a word or a phrase that references something else. Like if I said to you, ask not what you can do for your country... Uh, you would say, that's not right. You wouldn't respond. You go, oh, that's not what it is. It's that's not what your country can do for you. What you oh, people, come on. I pledge allegiance. Okay. You know, okay. So you, you would have all these things that come up in your mind, like, like maybe your, your high school U.S. history teacher. Uh, maybe you would think of Saturday morning cartoon and I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill, whatever that, you know, something comes to your mind. When you hear that, you think about something. Maybe it's a poster of Uncle Sam. You know, doing that kind of thing. It kind of brings these, and that's what a remez does. It's a word or a phrase that brings about something else. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, there were a few places that the Jews' minds would instantly go to and think about. They'd first go to the Mishnah. The Mishnah is Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. In Sanhedrin chapter 10, verse 1, it says, All Israelites have a share in the world to come. For it is written, your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess, and that's the word inherit, the land, that's the word earth, forever. In Isaiah 60, verse 21, it says, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess, that's the word inherit, the land, that's the word earth, forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. And so what Jesus does as a rabbi is right here, he's sharing the standard view of how all Jews understand the world. There's the world we live in, but then there's the world that God intends, the world to come. This world today is, is hierarchied in all sorts of crazy ways, but the future world is ordered in a way, a different way, the way of God, the kingdom of God. Now, open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 37. In Psalm 37, this phrase, inherit the earth, is there. You also see the word meek. In Hebrew, this is the word anav, and it means humble, lowly. It can actually refer to being poor in spirit. Inherit the earth is found five times in Psalm 37. And so when Jesus uses this phrase, automatically his audience would also go, boom, Psalm 37. It's like a trigger. They would think Psalm 37, Jesus is commentating on Psalm 37. They'd also know how Psalm 37 starts. Psalm 37 verse 1 says this, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. When you think everybody else is getting their peace and you've got to worry about it, mellow out. That's how he starts it. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Verse 9, for the evildoers shall be cut off. For those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Again, that's the word for earth. Verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. Verse 22, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land and those cursed by him shall be cut off. Blessed, meek, inherit the land, all in Psalm 37, but it starts with don't worry. 
Some things are going to last and other things will not. So how did the Jews hear these words? Because something is going on. There's a political and cultural mindset that Jesus is speaking into when he says these words. And so what was the world like at the time of Jesus' public ministry? Well, the world was ruled by the Roman Empire. I'm not making that up. You can check me on that. All right, uh, here's a picture of what the Roman Empire ruled. They ruled essentially the entire known world. How did they come to rule the entire known world? Uh, one historian says of the Roman general Germanicus, he slaughtered the world across the Rhine for 50 miles around. He wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Only the destruction of the race would end the war. Now, in December, if you were here, I kind of walked through some of this with you, so this will be a little refresher for a little bit. And if you weren't here, then this is brand new, so great, good for you. Uh, in the city of Pompeii, there's an inscription in Minerva's temple that talks about a Roman general who took 12 million people as subjects in 1,500 towns. One general, 12 million prisoners. Theodore Seleucius says they made the boundaries of the empire the boundaries of the earth. Everything Rome did was to expand the breadth and the wealth of the empire. And so the Roman world, Roman Empire rules the world. Who rules the Roman Empire? A series of Caesars. They all made different types of salads. Oh, whatever, okay. Julius Caesar, he rules until he dies in 44 AD, but the Senate was kind of ruling along with them until he tried to get rid of them. Then in 27 AD, or BC, you have a guy named Octavian who became Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus took out what was called the Triumvirate, and he became the ruling, reigning emperor of the Roman Empire. All the power under him came under one guy. After him, you have a guy named Tiberius. Uh, Tiberius rules during Jesus' public ministry. Then it goes to a guy named Caligula, really funny guy, made his horse a senator. Funny. Uh, and then it comes Nero, then a guy named Vespasian. Then you get to a guy named Titus. Titus destroys the temple of God in 70 AD. In AD 81, Domitian comes into power. He says he was a god just like all the other previous Caesars did. And so how does Caesar get so much power? How does Caesar inherit all of the land? He had a giant army. And if you said Caesar is Lord, you would get temples built in his name. But if you would not say that, you would get slaughtered or become a slave. How does Caesar pay his army? With taxes, your money. You can only go into battle if you can pay your army. Then, apparently. Okay. <laughs> Jews in Jesus' area, they're paying like 80 to 90% of their income in taxes. And so this is your money going to pay a foreign oppressive government to blaspheme your God. Now, today, we just call that cave one movie tickets. Hurts when it gets close, right? At Jesus' birth, Caesar Augustus is the one that is reigning, but he hands his reign down to all the Caesars that come after him. So again, Augustus rules from Britain to India. He rules the entire known world. Parliament declares him to be a god on the earth. Temples were built and sacrifices were offered to the god Augustus. During the time, they had this thing called Advent. And during Advent, the priests of Augustus would offer forgiveness for those who sacrificed to the god Augustus. All over the Roman Empire, conquered cities had altars erected in them. And Caesar Augustus started to call these cities ecclesias, which is where we get our word for church. There's a slogan in the empire that went like this. Salvation is found in no other than Caesar Augustus. They would come into your town and they would say, Caesar is Lord. You say, oh yes, Caesar is Lord. Well, you would get temples, you became a province, and you got taxed so they could go get more land. If you said, no, Caesar is not Lord, you got dead and hung on a cross or become a slave. Virgil wrote of Augustus, the one who is to come will be the divine king of salvation. Which is really interesting. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is in jail. He's getting ready to be beheaded. And he's baptized Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. And Jesus hasn't come and kicked all the Romans out of Israel like he assumed the Messiah was supposed to do. And so John, what happens in Matthew 11, 2 and 3, it says, When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? 
or should we expect someone else? Deliberately going back and asking, you know, are you the true king or is this guy really the king? Virgil said of Augustus, he will establish a universal empire of peace and lead in a golden age of blessing for renewed humanity. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says he will return at the renewal of all things. One of the ways that Caesar would keep the masses happy is this thing they would call bread and circus. They give out bread to the poor, bread to the masses. They would give them games like the gladiatorial games. It would keep them happy, keep their mind off their poverty and their government becoming more and more oppressive. And Jesus came and he called himself the bread of life. I don't think that's, that's by chance. Christians said Jesus is Lord. They would meet and they would break bread together. In the book of Acts, it said they would see that everybody had their needs met. They said, we take care of each other because the bread of life Jesus told us to. And the poor really were fed because Jesus really was Lord. And then 300 years after this, this movement called Christianity takes over the entire Roman Empire. If you want to rule in your Caesar and have this much land, you have to put governors to rule in places for you. So in Israel, they put a guy named Herod. Herod was a capricious, mean, angry man. And so the question comes down to, who gets the earth? It has been carved up in Jesus' day by Rome and given to whomever they wanted. You have Roman soldiers walking up and down your street. Yet the Jewish scriptures told these people that their God was the one true God. You are not supposed to bow down to anybody else. They may even have had a catchy song called Our God Reigns. I don't know. So these people who don't acknowledge their God have come in and they have conquered them. And if you're a Jew, what do you do about that? There's this profound sense of shame. There's a profound sense of loss. Because these people are ruling over you. It's not how it's supposed to go. Who inherits the earth? Well, obviously the Romans inherit the earth. People with big swords inherit the earth. Those who can build roads inherit the earth. Those who can make a common currency. Well, they inherit the earth, obviously. Yet Jesus stands in the midst of this and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is an astounding phrase that Jesus says in the midst of this culture. They've got to be thinking, does Jesus not understand where he is? Does he not understand what's really going on here? Does he not get it? Because your nagging fear as a Jew is the earth is being divided up and God has forgotten about you. You're not getting what you want. God's not giving what you think you need. God's letting all these things happen. How can God do that to us? Other people are passing you up. You've been left behind. You know, it's no longer impossible to be keeping up with the Romans because I, I, can't, I can't get there. This still takes place today because we think God owes us certain things. This, it makes us do all sorts of crazy things. Like if your car goes into a shop, and, and imagine you get a loaner, and it's a gasp, it's a minivan, right? You're like, oh my goodness, what do I do? Then maybe you meet some people, and you're going to go to lunch with them for the first time, and you pull up to a restaurant in your gasp minivan, and they're standing out front waiting for you. You park that thing, the first thing you say is, it's not mine, it's a loaner the first thing you say. Uh, James has this, used to have this purple Honda Civic, and you drive it over these bumps, and it would go boom, 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 boom. It was horrible. And so one year, they're at camp, and I leave my truck up there, and i got to drive his car all the way back home from this camp. All the, I'm having this conversation in my head all the way home. It's not mine. It's not mine. You know, no one's asking me. I'm just thinking in my head, it's not mine. It's not mine. Mine's much nicer. Mine's much better. Uh, about a couple months ago, my wife's car was in the shop because I wrecked it. And so it's in the shop, and they give us a loaner. It is the smallest, tiniest little car you've ever seen. And I'm driving down the road going, it's not mine. It's not mine. Mine's much nicer. Mine's much nicer. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Because we want to make sure that we are getting our proper slice of the pie. It's not for anyone else. We don't trust God in it. It's our slice. We don't want to be perceived as not getting our peace. We don't want to be seen as the meek. Maybe you're a mom. 
and you show up to a place for a kid play date with some new moms. You kind of met me through Element Moms. So you got this new kid play date. It's so wonderful. It's great. Well, you show up and like your kid's hair won't stay down again. You got another kid. They put their shirt on backwards again and then threw up on it on the way over again. You know, and you show up and all these other moms there they have, they have kids with like iron t-shirts. It's like sick and wrong. Okay, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> And automatically a mom feels the need to say, oh, it's been a tough morning and all kinds of other reasons. Because there's this haunting thing in the back of our head. There's this nagging fear that everyone else is somehow organized, ahead of the curve. They're all on time and you are behind the curve. Like you missed your little slice of the pie. And the feeling, you know, it's not that the meek who get the earth, but the will organized, the morning people. You know, those who with iron t-shirts, that's who get the earth. Some, there's some people who can make money just grow, and it's amazing. And you and I struggle with our 401ks all day long. And we say, how do you do that? And they go, I don't know, must be the blessing of God, which doesn't help us, okay? It's not a good answer. Like, seriously, buddy, what's going on? So again, like, everyone's getting ahead, and we don't. Is this what Jesus is saying? Oh, I'm finally going to get ahead? I'm finally going to get all that I want? This is a temptation that we have throughout the ages. You know, that Jesus announces, blessed are the meek. Well, how do I become meek so I can get what I want? And Jesus turns around, and this is why he starts to summer on the mount the way he does. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, the humble, because, you know, those who don't have it all together, they inherit the earth. This is what Jesus is saying. Stop freaking out. I am God, I am King, I am Lord. You can trust me and stop trying to grab onto all these things you think you need and trust me for what you actually do need. This is the heart of the gospel. Now, if you look at this theologically, which we should look at it theologically, you could say it like this. There is a way things that we think things in the world work, and there is a way that they actually will work, and they actually do work. It is called the way of the heavens or the kingdom of God. It is seen in generosity and compassion and honesty and truth-telling even when it's hard. It's a way of serving other people rather than manipulating them to try and get what we want. It is how we live as the meek, simply trusting our great God. It may not work out the way you think today, but it does work out because God is in control of all things. And this is, the part, this is what religion has done. Okay? Religion comes along, and they, and they don't see that, that God is in control, and they, and they really worry about all of these things. And so it has tried to make us lead to the split of these realms, where you say, oh, well, not meek, they get the earth, but the meek, will they get the heavens. Because it's for real. You know? it, it is real. Okay? We do believe in, in a literal heaven. But we turn this thing around, we think it's all about winning. How do I win? How do I get what I want? And as Christians, you know, we can't win, so we try to remove ourselves from the world around us. And since we can't win non-Christians, well, we may as well just become weird. You know, put a doily on your wife's head, you know, don't wear makeup, but, you know, uh, you know uh, make sure everybody votes the way you want them, them to vote. Create a language only you can understand and nobody else can understand. I mean, that's how you get your little piece of the earth. You cover it out to make it look like your crazy view of heaven here and now. We'll just stay in the heavenly realm. We'll do church like bomb shelter. We won't reach out to anybody. We won't reach out to the lost, the people who really need to hear about Jesus Christ. We'll all just huddle in. And when we get people that are just like us and both the way that we do and like the things that we like, and that's who we'll hang out with and nobody else. We'll do it like bomb shelter. We'll go live like monks on a hill. We'll remove ourselves from this broken planet, and then it will decay and rot and implode and burn itself out, whatever mode of destruction that you like, and then we'll come back out because we're living in the bomb shell, and we will take over, and that's how we inherit the earth. That is not what Jesus is saying. That is not what the scriptures say at all. That is not what God intends for his people. So you've got to understand that Jesus, as a teacher of the scriptures, believes the way traditional Jews did. 
And the view is that there are these two realms. There is a heaven and there, and there is an earth. But these two things are both supposed to come under the rule and the reign of God. That heaven and earth become a place that's reconciled together. It's not a place where, you know, this place is going to burn and one day we'll fly away over there by and by. The early Christian idea and the view of Jesus that these two realms come together under the rule and the reign of Christ. God's kingdom becomes evident everywhere. That here and now becomes filled with the peace and the grace and the love of God. The way the earth is actually supposed to become is the way of Christ. Heaven and earth, same place, recreated, reconciled, where things are as God intends them to be. Coming together. That's why when Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew 6.10, Pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the idea of God's kingdom here. Now. That's the world to come that we bring about now by how we actually live our lives. And so when you look at something like Psalm 37, you see this word wicked and evildoers a lot, depending on your version of the scriptures that you have there. Psalm 37, verse 1, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass. Again, verse 9, For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 18, The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. Verse 22, For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. And when we read these things, we think, yeah, those wicked, those evildoers, yeah, they're going to be cut off. But don't you understand that Jesus starts a sermon on the mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, because that's us. We're the evildoers. We're the wrongdoers. And our God has offered us grace and peace and hope and brings that all together. I mean, the idea behind this is that when heaven and earth come together under the rule and the reign of Christ, wickedness can just no longer survive. And greed can't function because we become a generous people. And retaliation doesn't exist because we are a people who reconcile. And what if there is just no place for evil in the world to come because there is simply just no place for it? Because God has so completely changed and renewed his people and we stop trying to get our own slice of the pie and we simply trust God to be who he is and live the way he called us to live. And what if in Psalm 37.1 when it says, for they will soon fade like the grass, it actually means it just fades away because it can't survive. See, the way the kingdom of God, compassion, joy, hope, love, and there's the same old boring way of the earth that just keeps going and it's all about winning. It's a depressing struggle and it keeps going on and on and on and on and on. And Jesus says, that's not how my people are supposed to live. It's not about winning. It's about trusting me. And that's the beauty of the scriptures and what God calls us to. You know, people struggled in the past, you know, with the culture around them, just like we do now. The ancient world was filled with sacrifices and polygamy and ideas of uncleanliness and all kinds of odd customs. And we read that and we think, why was life so much weirder then than it is now? And I'll tell you a secret. It's not, okay? It's not. We just live now, so we think we're not weird. But I will guarantee you that you fast forward 2,000 years and someone looks back at us and sees our reruns of The Bachelor and YouTube videos of treadmill dancers and skiing squirrels and what a fox says and someone driving around in a Yugo and listening to the music of someone called Lady Gaga and how we say drugs are bad, okay? You know, drugs are bad, but yet we, we deify these, these movie stars and rock stars who are addicted to drugs. And you think they're going to say that we were normal in our day? No way. Ever since the Enlightenment, which is a really interesting phrase to call an era, we're enlightened and, and you're not, we are guilty of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. And this is the assumption that we live in the day, and the day that we live, we are so much smarter than everybody else, and we don't really need to follow the scriptures because we are intellectually and morally superior just by nature of when we live. 
But seriously, I mean, if that's the case, tell me the book or authority or source that you want to base your one and only life on that's going to be around 2,000, 200,000, 2 million years from now. The words of Jesus in the scriptures changed the world. It didn't do that by accidents. Empires have fallen. Cultures have gone away. Some things that seemed so right at the time were so wrong. And yet God's word in his kingdom have endured. And he says, blessed are the meek, the humble, the poor in spirit. They will inherit the earth because they're the ones that actually trust me. They don't have to live like the rest of the world around them. They actually trust me and live lives of grace and hope and peace. This is one of the reasons why God constantly reminds us throughout the scriptures that he never changes. In Hebrews 13.8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6, God reminds his people, for I, the Lord, do not change. See, it's in Psalm 23 and Psalm 102 and Isaiah 43 and Exodus 3 and Psalm 33. All speak of what we call God's immutability, God's unchangingness. God says that we are the ones who change. We are always changing, but God says, I don't change. We change the years and the times and the seasons, the decades and the centuries and the millennia, but God doesn't change. God tells us it is actually his steadfast love, his unchanging commitment to you and I that keeps us from being destroyed. God is a loving father, and he says, you know what? I love you, and I'm still going to love you. He says, I'm going to forgive you, and I'm still going to forgive you. I'm going to help you, and I am still going to help you. And if you're a parent of a teenager, you may understand this, because there are times you may look at your kid, and you're like, you know what? If you were not my child, I would bury you. Our numbers would go down by one in this family today. That's what would happen. It's like Mark Driscoll said. He goes, any kid that looks at his parent and says, you never change, the parent should say, you're welcome. (laughs) See, God doesn't change. And we have security because he doesn't change as we do. So who inherits the earth? Well, obviously, it's Jesus. Jesus. But because he won the victory, that means we do as well. No matter what happens, no matter what people do, no matter what they say, no matter what is culturally acceptable at the moment, you and I do. Because Jesus has given it to us as a gift. The Greek word, again, for meek, it's gentle, it's, it's humble, it's self-controlled. It relates to poor in spirit. It means that towards other people, we have the freedom to stay away from malice and a vengeful spirit. Jesus exemplifies this in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, that's the word meek, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You ultimately see this when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he's riding a donkey. You know, if he came into Jerusalem to be you know, the conqueror that's going to squish everybody, he would have come in on a horse. And we're told in Revelation that he does that. But here he comes in on a donkey for the purposes of peace. In Matthew 21, 5, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Because Jesus comes and he proclaims the gospel as, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Poor in spirit, mourning over their sin. They become humble because they realize that they trust Jesus for everything. And we don't have to try and win. So how do you inherit the earth? We essentially just start to live like it's yours now. Like it's yours now. It's not in a snobbish way like, oh, I win, I'm better than you, I'm better than other people. It's in a way that wickedness doesn't have, a, doesn't have a place in it. And the kingdom of God is seeing how it is lived out in his people. You don't have to worry about getting even. You don't have to worry about trying to get your fair share. You get your, you, oh, oh. you don't have to worry about that. So often, this is what causes so much of the struggle and strife between people is because we think we have to win. We have to get what we want. How dare they treat me that way? How dare this thing happen? And Jesus says, stop. Stop. I won the victory. Who inherits the earth? The meek, the humble, the ones that trust me. So trust me. 
and stop freaking out. This is why we come to communion. It's a place to remember that our great God died and rose for us. You break that cracker like his body was broken for us in remembrance of what he'd done. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice and remind us of his blood that was shed for you and I. Because he has won the victory. You don't have to. It doesn't mean that you don't make plans like how am I going to get my kids through college and things like that. But in a, in a real practical way, imagine you go to a movie. And, and you think, oh my goodness, it looks like it's sold out. And you freak out the entire time because you're not, not going to get a seat behind the bar so you can put your feet up just right. And you're like, oh, what am I going to do? You don't have to freak out. You don't have to be the one that gets ahead. You can walk in there and sit wherever you want. You don't need to freak out. You don't need to have this tight grip of control on your life because Jesus has the one who paid the price, who won the victory, and called you and I home. We trust him. We trust him. So stop freaking out. The gospel is good news. The gospel isn't like, here, have more attention. The gospel is, Jesus says, you know, I will give you rest. So rest in me. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. There's some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer. I mean, if you're in a place of, of ten, where you're just like always holding on to things. You're like, I don't know what to do. I got, ah, and you're just always freaking out. Go and pray with them. Because you need to understand that Jesus has won the ultimate victory. That Jesus is God, He is King, He is Lord. And we don't have to freak out so much. Blessed are the meek, the humble, those who realize they're poor in spirit. They inherit the earth because we realize He's already won that victory. So we don't have to freak out. There's offering boxes inside of all in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of that worship. Uh, there is food and stuff in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat. Maybe you can meet somebody new. Invite them out to lunch this week. And then like, Borrow your friend's minivan and show up in it. <laughs> be like, it's not mine. Yeah. And be like, no, it's mine. Yeah. I had somebody after first service. They tried to tell me there's even a hierarchy to minivans. And I'm like, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> Blessed are the minivan owners, for they will drive like they inherit the earth. Um, anyway, what we want you to do is we want you to get together with other people. Ask these questions. Talk about these things. Because really, it is a question we ask. We just don't even know that we're really asking it. Who gets what they want? Who inherits it? How do I make sure I'm getting my fair share? How can I let go of that? And trust Jesus because he is the one who has given us the ultimate victory. So we live in that. That brings great peace to our souls. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we be those who live like it actually is ours now. Because eternal life begins the moment we believe and goes into all of eternity. And so I ask that we would simply be a people who begin to trust your promises. That we would let go of all the things that we strive so hard to hang on to. Especially the hurt and anger when others offend us. Like we are God. We are angry at how they have offended us. Ask that we can understand that those are all things that you have died and risen for. And we can simply be this people who trust you in a way that we let go of all of that. We don't have to strive to get ahead because there is no more ahead we can get because you redeemed us. So have us live lives that look completely different. Lives of open trust in you lives of grace and honesty and lives full of hope because you are our great redeemer and we want the entire world to know how good and gracious our God is. 
that he calls the poor in spirit to be his. And that we would be a people who lift our lives to the only God who is able to save us and keep us and call us home. So have us live in that grace, in that peace, and in that hope. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.